This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. This is the tale of Hazel Drew the inspiration for Twin Peaks. She was a farm girl until the age of 14, when in 1902, she became a domestic servant for the mayor or treasurer of a town called Troy. It's difficult to get specifics because this is 1902. So Troy is a more wealthy town than the one that she grew up in, and she no longer wanted to be a financial burden to her family. So she was able to obtain the job through her aunt, who was a bookkeeper for some of Troy's wealthy families. So since it was a larger and busier city than what she was used to, she was trying to work her way into more of a society position. So she upgraded her employment when Professor E.R. Carey offered her a job as a governess in her hometown of Sand Lake. Hazel Drew was known to be quite attractive. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and what they would call back in the day a fit figure. She was engaged to a man in 1906 through 1907, but instead, that man decided to choose another woman, so she was left. The July 4th weekend, she was allegedly going to go to Lake George. Um, Nobody had any clue on who she was going to Lake George with. Her aunt states that she actually stayed with her in Troy this weekend. The day before she died, on July 6th, she abruptly quit her job for E.R. Carey as the governess, and she was seen at a train station in Troy. So the same day, or the next day, um, she was seen at 7 p.m. on July 7th picking raspberries on the side of the road. She was alone, and this is super uncommon for the day, to have an unmarried woman walking alone on the streets late at night. So Hazel had a reputation in the community of being sweet and innocent. She had no known boyfriends. She was known to live beyond her means than her salary would have afforded. She had nice clothes, took a lot of vacations, and dined out regularly. So when I say that she had fine clothes, Mayday, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So she uh, commissioned often um, to have many clothes custom made for her. In particular, um, around this time, the Friday before the 4th of July weekend that she was supposed to be headed out to Lake George, she had commissioned a button-down blouse, which is a functional shirtwaist. Um, that is basically ready-to-wear, workplace appeal, and its simple design made it very common of women at that time to wear it. It was more than just a fashion statement. It was basically a iconic kind of image for women's rights at that time. Wearing a shirtwaist blouse freed them from domestic duties, and so it basically uh, signaled um, newfound female independence at that time. And it was very progressive ideal at that time. So she, by wearing this, was just making a simple statement of her own independence. At this time, shirt blouses were adorned with lace and elaborate stitching. They were 
fashionably tucked into the waistband of a skirt, and they could be sold individually or as an ensemble. And in particular, that 4th of July weekend, she had commissioned it as a separate blouse. So is it called a shirtwaist or is it called a blouse? Because I'm confused. So it's both. At that time, um, it was called a shirtwaist. And this kind of came out of the fact that um, it was a new thing for women to be wearing. They didn't really have a name for it because it was modeled after menswear shirts. So hence it was called a shirtwaist in English at the time. But then we commonly came to know it as the, the French-derived word of blouse or blouse. Okay, so now I'm getting how this like actually ties into how it's a statement because it's based on menswear. So she's out and about wearing essentially feminized menswear. Correct. Okay, so this really does become important. Promise me, stay with me. At the age of 20 years old, on July 11th in 1908, Hazel Drew was found dead floating in a pond of Sand Lake, New York. She was found with a string or a ribbon wrapped around her throat. She had no water in her lungs. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the back of her head with an unknown object. She had been missing for four days, and she had to be identified by her clothing and her gold fillings. So I just laid out a lot of information there, so let's break it down just a little. So when I say that she had no water in her lungs, Mayday, can you elaborate as to why this is important? This is important because upon autopsy, when it was found that she had no water in her lungs, what that means is that she was not breathing at the time that she was submerged into water. Hence, there's no water entering into her airways and into her lungs. So that means that she um, had ceased breathing before being inserted into the pond, meaning she was either dead or not either, but she was specifically (laughs) dead before she was put into this pond. So then furthermore, when I say that since she had been missing for four days and she had been submerged in the water, this caused her to, we'll just put it gently, not appear as she normally would appear. So can you go into a deeper description of this wonderful phenomenon that we have that's called bloating? Sure. So what happens when a body starts to decay, putrefaction progresses, and gases are formed from the bacterial activity inside the body. And so the bacterial activity will start to get to a point where the body will essentially become buoyant because the gases start to build up inside the body. The body will float. And specifically in water, the body will tend to... um, initially assume what's called the drowning position, where the front end of the body or the anterior aspect of the individual faces the bottom of the body of water, um, and the extremities will basically dangle below, and depending on the current of the water, so this was a pond, so I imagine it was slow moving, typically slow moving water tends to cause less abrasion to the extremities, but in fast moving water where there is strong current, the body as it's floating along with its extremities sort of dragging along the bottom of rocks and things will often uh, get abrasions, which can kind of cause difficulty in determining which injuries were caused um, prior to death or after death being inserted in the water. So you said specifically that she had maybe a another wound to her body when she was discovered? 
Yes, she did have blunt force trauma to the back of her head, but they were unable to determine what the object that was that created it. And would this be due to the four days of bloating? Um, yeah, so bloating will cause the body to appear differently. Um, it basically swells up. And being submerged in water, um, it basically leaches out the blood from the wounds. So it makes the wound more difficult to determine kind of what kind of injury it was. In this particular case, it was assessed that it was cause of death to be blunt force trauma. Um, and usually injuries to the skull, they can be categorized as depression injuries, penetration injuries, crushing injuries, slashes, cuts, and slices. And in this particular case, it was mentioned that it was um, possibly due to an impact from a blunt object. So I'm assuming this looked more like a depression or a crushing. And uh, this is typically caused by maybe a low-velocity impact with a blunt surface. So they were unable to identify what particular object caused this wound, but we know from its description that it was most likely a blunt object and it caused a maybe depression or a crush injury to the back of her skull. So bringing this about to even current days, I know that I have seen plenty of blunt force trauma. I'm sure you have as well. And there is no real mistaking a blunt force trauma for, say, a sharp cutting or impact, uh, other impact injury, correct? Correct. And this is characteristic based on the type of wounding that is uh, visualized. So in this particular injury, um, they may have observed uh, pieces of the skull fragments inside of the brain, um, which would indicate um, a blunt force injury as opposed to a sharp force injury, which is more like a laceration or a, um, from a sharp um, object. So... We now have, you know, she is deceased. It's been four days since she was last seen. Um, she was identified based on the clothing and her gold fillings because she was wearing that shirt that she had just commissioned. Her gloves and hat were found on the shore, and her hat had like a plume and a letter H on it, like a monogram almost. Um and then on top of that, so the police are starting to do their police investigation, and that's when they're starting to unravel the story of Hazel Drew. So like I said, she had a reputation of being sweet and innocent with no known boyfriends, but when the police start digging in a little, rumors start circulating that she had been involved with many men, that she had been writing to or meeting men in secret. And uh, when they found her luggage, it had been checked into a train station in Troy. And in her luggage, she had numerous men's handkerchiefs. And she, this was known by, you know, the initial or the monograms that was very common back in the day. And they were in her luggage. So since she had been seen in Troy at the train station on the 6th, she had checked her bags in there. And then the police went back after the 11th to go figure out what was happening. So I'm just going to debunk one of the theories about what may have happened to Hazel Drew right off the bat. So she was seen July 7th picking raspberries on the side of the road. So the first theory that anybody came up with was that it was a vehicle versus pedestrian type of homicide and that her body just wound up in the pond randomly. So we can both very well explain this, but please explain why a single head wound with no water in the lungs and a string around the neck would be completely non-indicative of this type of trauma. So why would she have a string around her neck? 
if she was hit and struck by a car unexpectedly on the side of the road, uh, she wouldn't have this around her neck. It is surmised that maybe somebody else tied this around her neck. Um, it's not common to wear a string around your neck wrapped like that, like a ligature, uh, or something used to maybe str- strangle somebody. Um, secondly, a vehicle causes a lot of blunt force injury to the body. And when her body was recovered, she had no other observable blunt force trauma except for this wound to the back of her head. So right there, that rules out being struck by a vehicle. And then the fact that she had no water in her lungs means that she was already dead before she entered the water. So the car would have had to have struck her and she would have immediately had to have died before she somehow ended up into the pond for her to have been not breathing um, and to show no water in the lungs. So this doesn't scientifically make or forensically make any sense to us. So we don't think that this story of being struck by a vehicle, kind of a hit and run accident where the driver went on his merry or her merry way and she somehow wound up into the pond. So this one doesn't hold any water. (laughs) Pun intended, I hope. (laughs) So as I said, she was last seen 7 p.m. July 7th. Well, she was actually seen by Frank Smith, who was a local farmhand, and he was known to fancy Hazel, but he was with uh, Rudolf Gunderman, who was a charcoal peddler. And the both of them are completely cleared because of an alibi. So even though it seems like they would be the suspects, they really can't be. They were both alibied out. So they were the last ones to see her, but we can forget about them now. Next up is Hazel's uncle. His name's William Taylor. He lived within one mile of this pond. When she was found, he oh so helpfully pulled her body out of the water. He was known to be a depressed man. The police could not connect him with the murder, and they really don't know where Hazel was at this time of the murder. So as we'd said that she was in Troy, but if she had been visiting her aunt and uncle... Uh, she would have been at her uncle's house right around this time, one mile from this pond. So another possible suspect is a local dentist that had allegedly proposed to Hazel Drew, even though he was already married. He claims he saw her once when she wanted dental work done at night. He refused and never saw her again. But she had told tales about how this dentist kept pursuing her and she just had no interest in him. Another suspect could have possibly been a train conductor that she was allegedly dating in secret since she was last seen at the Troy train station and her bags were checked there that she may have never even gotten on a train or anything to be able to pick up her bags. So if she was murdered at the train station or by the train conductor, that also doesn't really hold water because of the two gentlemen that saw her on the side of the road on July 7th. So if the bags are packed and she's at the train station on July 6th, why would the train conductor murder her on the 7th? And where? Another one that came up was a local millionaire who ran an illicit club nearby that Hazel was allegedly seeing as well. But this is, well, he gets brought up because a neighbor had heard screams the night of the 7th at his location. He's also brought up because, remember, we were saying Hazel was known to live well beyond her means. So who was paying for her extravagant lifestyle? So with the scream and the money, and Hazel had allegedly been seeing him, and he ran a nearby illicit club, 
that one's kind of like solidified to me. Like that's a really good suspect. Another suspect, yes, this case has nothing but suspects. <laughs> Another one is the professor that employed Hazel. Why did she quit so abruptly, randomly? It was a great position. She was a governess. She was living in the you know society that she wanted to be in. And then out of nowhere, she up and quits, never to be seen again. Why is that? Is it because uh, he may have been afraid that she was going to say something? And finally, in her bags, uh, there was a, a numerous letters, love letters, that were written to her from a man whose only initials are C-E-S. Nobody has any clue who C-E-S is, but he wrote her numerous love letters that were in her luggage. So did she quit being a governess to go meet up with the C-E-S? Did he promise her some better life somewhere that she couldn't turn down and something happened? Who knows? So this case is a case that has so many more questions than answers, which is probably why it inspired Twin Peaks and why Twin Peaks is such a crazy show. So we're left with more questions. How did she return from Troy back to the lake where she was found dead, where nobody saw her in between? There were no sightings of her from the train station to picking raspberries on the side of the road to the pond. Why were her bags left at the Troy train station? Also, why was her hat and her gloves on the side of the pond shore? Perfectly reasonable. And why was she walking where she was at night alone as a single woman? It would have been a long walk from the train or trolley station. She was in high-heeled boots, so it's not like it would have been a comfortable meander. So yet another far-stretched theory, in my opinion, is somebody said it was a carefully plotted suicide. So she quit her job. Her hats and gloves are on the bank of the pond. But um, how did she give herself a very bad blunt force trauma head wound and guarantee that somehow she would wind up in the pond, but she had to be dead before she wound up in the pond first? So please, do you see this feasible, Mayday? No, it definitely does not seem feasible for it to be a, a suicide. Uh, there's no way scientifically that we can put what we know to be facts, which is that the cause of death was um, blunt force trauma to the back of the head and that she had no water in her lungs and her being found in the body of water of the pond. So if you were to commit a suicide and you take your hat and your gloves off on the side of the pond, how do you guarantee that your body will land in the water, that you will be dead before your body gets submerged in the water, and that you give yourself this blunt force injury to the back of your skull. It just doesn't seem logical unless you're standing in the pond, possibly with maybe a blunt force object like a hammer maybe, and you hit yourself in the back of the head with a hammer, but you have to die instantly before falling into the pond. So a lot of those things just don't seem very feasible. So I think I agree with the pathologist at that time. I think this is more than likely a homicide. And I'm going to even go one step further. This is a pond, not a lake, not an ocean, a pond. If there was said hammer or blunt force instrument, it would still be there. <laughs> More than likely, yes, without the water moving, because ponds generally tend to be slow moving or still, um, the hammer probably or whatever blunt force thing that she could have possibly used if she were to commit suicide with this object would be found. And I'm just going to say, in all the cases that I have done in my career, 
I have yet to see suicide by hammer. Right. It's just, again, not one of those things that are typically done. And kind of fun fact, um, because she puts her gloves on the side of the pond or for whatever reason, she's not wearing her gloves when she's found in the water. Uh, More than likely, when her body was recovered, she probably exhibited what we know as washerwoman's hands, which the skin on the hands essentially um, just change and they become incredibly wrinkled and start to essentially slip off of the the hands. So it looks kind of like a glove, but not really because it's actually your skin. So that would have eliminated any useful impressions of fingerprints as well, which is why she had to be identified by the clothing and her uh, gold teeth. Correct. So... We're going to wrap up this case with a bunch of depressing news. This case was never solved. No one was ever arrested. The investigation only lasted one month. And all records about this case were destroyed in a fire in the Rensselaer County District Attorney's Office, um, probably like just a couple decades ago. So there is no records, no arrest, no completion, no conclusion, Nothing. This case is just dead in the water. Wow, that was not intended. (laughs) So, but the story lives on because it gets retold um, through Twin Peaks, which kind of gives us this uh, cautionary tale of why women shouldn't be walking late at night because you can mysteriously end up dead essentially on the side of a pond. Um, And also that women may possibly have secrets, right? This fact that she was an upstanding citizen outwardly, a sweet, kind person who had no boyfriends and come to find that she had this mysterious past of lots of boyfriends with many handkerchiefs that belonged to many men. And we had no idea who she was meeting, um, which is basically the premise for why Laura Palmer ends up dead in Twin Peaks. Really? Because my take home from this was buy the expensive clothes because they may help people identify your body at a later date. Yeah, that and get gold fillings. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Murder and mystery.